Welcome to More Real, a podcast about real people for real people. I wanted to create a space where I share my true feelings and those of my guests about what it's like to live in today's world, the challenges we face and how we deal with them or don't. What about all that stuff that's just not said but should be? You know, the conversations that we really want to have but don't. What do we really think and feel? What about our regrets, the dreams that we have and the stuff we should be doing but we don't? Each week, I'll be here talking to real people about real life. This is a very honest look at life, and hopefully, by listening, it will help you to have a better understanding of yours. In today's episode, I'm talking to a friend of mine, Tara, about parenting, and how her childhood and parents influenced who she is, and how she parents now, and the impact that's had on her family. I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Thanks very much and enjoy the show. Tell me about parenting. How challenging do you find it, given that you are a therapist? Is a that the way? Psychologist, not therapist. And therapist. And therapist as well. Given the nature of what you do, how, how challenging is the balance between what you do during the day and then being able to be a good mother to your children? So I think it fits for me, me being a whole person. So me and all of who I am is a range of different things. So I'm a mum and someone who runs a business whose job it is to also then take care of other people. So I guess across my whole entire life, there is a sense of my role as a person is that I largely take care of people and that translates pretty well for me from motherhood and therapist across Mm. and so you know I guess with my kids I'm always consciously aware of noticing so noticing what they need being there for them probably a bit too acutely aware of the things that might cause pain and making sure I'm across that I think what you're asking me is how do I flip between the roles? Was well, one of the things you were just talking, I'm thinking, do you find yourself second guessing? Which would be tough for you because if you, by nature of what you do, you observe, you understand, you guide people, they're your children. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're your flesh and blood. You love them yep. and care for them dearly. So you kind of going at times, oh God, they said this, or oh, you know. Oh, they've just done that, or I know this. Do you find that or not really? So it might sound less paranoid than what you just described it. (laughs) Don't make you out to be completely (laughs) loony, but you know what I mean? I'm just thinking that must be a challenge. I I, think it would be challenging, given what you do. I am both absolutely confident and comfortable fiercely owning my motherhood. I really trust myself as a mum. And as a person who can see and understand a range of things that might get missed by others. And I'm also acutely aware of the damage I can create. So it's an interesting dichotomy to to go forward into such an important role with. When my babies were babies, I used to feel, and this is, you know, 17 and 14 years ago, I used to feel very aware of 
their attachment needs because, you know, my own history is one of some fractured relationships with, you know, my parents split up when I was seven and dad was a bit absent. He tried, but he was, you know, he was tried the best he could and I love him dearly. But there was stuff that went on that leaves a kid feeling unsafe and unattached and all that kind of stuff. So I, I go into motherhood with some kinds of attachment wounds, if we call them that. I remember when my eldest was a baby and I was swaddling him for sleep. This is when, you know, he was probably a couple of months old. And I popped him down into his cot. Actually, he was in a bassinet. No, 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 he must have been about five months old because he'd moved from the room that he was in my room into his cot, right, which was already a separation. And I put him, he was asleep, he fell asleep on me. I put him down and as I put, popped him down and I was about to walk backwards, his little eyes popped open. <laughs> and he just looked at me with these big, beautiful blue eyes. And I remember thinking in that moment, I need to get out, I need to walk out of the room because he's actually just reflexively kind of popped his eyes open and it's time for sleep and he's asleep and he's sleepy. I needed to just let him settle. But I felt this you know, crisis of, of awareness come up in me that I didn't want him to see me leaving him. I just didn't want him to feel abandoned. And it's not true that he, he would have felt abandoned in that moment. And that's part of the, the crisis of conscience, consciousness that comes up when you're both aware and attending to that awareness and also sucked into what actually is and isn't there. So it's not true that Joel feels abandoned because actually he's not. That's not his life experience. And I can project into that. So for me, motherhood is really balancing like that. Like you were saying, do I sometimes feel paranoid or worried? Do I look at every little thing? Much less than what I used to as I've gotten older and worked through my own stuff. Much less because I feel really safe about who they are. They're great people. They're really quite robust. They've got good lives. I see what they go through as quite normal teenage foibles and human insecurities so I'm quite reassured by a lot of the you know the realities of human beings and to what extent I mean you're their parents have they ended up the way you just described them which sounds like wow I sound like amazing kids and I do mm -hmm. know them they are amazing kids um to, to what extent you've guided them, they've obviously worked stuff out for themselves. H how have you done that? I feel very responsible for how they've turned out, actually. So first of all, and here's where some of the stuff that sounds judgy comes into it, and I have to just say it with an openness that's just about me and what I think and feel about children and the environments that children grow up in. So it can sound a bit preachy, but it's it's really just, you know, my belief and value system. And this didn't happen for me as I grew, but I, I really believe that you have your child, you raise them. And so I didn't want them to go to crash. I didn't want them to be stuck in environments where they were fending for themselves and they weren't being watched or attended to. I didn't want their survival instincts to be kicking in at two and one and a half. 
And so I was very careful about managing what they are exposed to and about making sure that they were seen and heard and attended to. How they ended up the way they've ended up? Then you oh, I made them me. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you said you take very you take a lot of responsibility for that. I do. I take responsibility for the way my kids are turning out, both good and bad, whatever that is. Because, you know, and this is that whole nature nurture thing, but I'm creating the environment. I created the early environment, what they're exposed to once they have friends, sleepovers, school and whatever that is they experience in the world is not within my control and, and rightly so. That's that's their life. That's the subject matter of their life, right? Um, but for what I could have been responsible for, I made sure that they were attended to and noticed help regulate them and you know their brain their body in terms of fears and worries and all those kinds of things I made sure that they had rights Moose always said to me that I treat my kids as if they are people with rights and choices I've always given my kids a right of say a right of decision an ability to um, make choices you know so when they were little I'd have to say you know this this or this thing choose because they were the three things or the two things that were possible or manageable not just pick out in the wide world what you want because that's not going to work so you know making sure that they've developmentally individuated into themselves so I would say that my kids probably haven't had a lot of being suppressed or frustrated by not being listened to or being controlled or dominated and do you think you do that because you didn't have that? You weren't hurt? I do that because that's my instinct. Because that's... But where does that come from? I just see every human being as having the, the same right of access to, to choice about who and what they are as any other human being, whether they're two years old or, you know, 95. That, you know, both really vulnerable ages, but that it's important for us to to make sure we look after that. But that's what, I, you know, I can't say that doesn't come from what I experienced as a response to it. You know, we are the sum of all our parts, right? We are a part of what we have been. We're part of our parents' history. We're part of a cultural history. You know, we live inside that. Okay. And touching on the cultural history... Given the nature, your husband's Jewish, you're not Jewish, you are now, but you weren't originally, <laughs> I apologise. What you didn't say was me pulling a face. Yeah, you didn't say that at all. But so how did that, how does the cultural side of where you came from, mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, obviously no one knows where you came from, so just give me a quick kind of your background, family, history, mm-hmm. origins, all that sort of stuff. Paternal history is British orientation. Maternal is Italian, European, Mediterranean. Both of my parents' parents and my grandparents were born in... Sorry, my grandparents weren't born in Australia. My maternal grandparents were born in Italy. So my mum's mum and dad were both born in Italy. They came here both as children not knowing each other. And my father's 
um, parents were here before. They were Murphys and Wilsons and, you know, Irish English stuff. And I was born into a non-practicing Catholic of origin family. So just Catholic kind of by default, although my dad's um, parents were practicing. My mum's parents just weren't at all. It wasn't real. It wasn't important to them at all. So I was Catholic by default. Part of my mum's divorce agreement with my dad was that my dad agreed to to his own mother to send us to a Catholic school. My mum just, you know, goes agreed because whatever. Um, so I went to a Catholic day school, just like a Jewish day school, um, just as religious quite practicing in fact from prep to year 12 um, and then when I went left school and went to uni I came into contact with my first group of Jewish friends and how did you how did that happen was this because it's like osmosis it just <clears throat> that's the group that you gravitate to why did you gravitate to those that group so within the first couple of weeks I'd met this girl who actually died a couple of weeks ago who worked at Monarch Cake Shop on Ackland Street and her was owned by the Hubermans and their son, Mark. We liked each other at uni and we started going out. So we were together for three years and by which time I was completely loved, accepted and involved in this massive, beautiful community of people that when we broke up, I, there was no way I was leaving. And what... <laughs> gravitate why did you gravitate was that just purely because you fancy someone and that was it although you talked the way you just described that mm-hmm. the way you talked you talked very passionately and that obviously resonated with, with you completely about what that whole mm-hmm. thing brought to you and what it gave you and all the rest of it so what was so that the way that I was brought up in terms of the kind of family dynamics I'm not talking about my own family of origin because that broke apart but yeah. the, the cultural familial experience of family is very much about family being there for each other that comes mostly from my mum's side of the family the Italians lunch on Sundays together and me staying there a lot as a kid and very tactile loving huggy grandparents you know we went fishing with my nonna and I learned to sew and bake cakes Mm. with my nana quite traditional roles but very involved and I always loved that and I was always searching for a community I didn't really have such a community as I was growing up so to to me as soon as I kind of met all of Mark's friends and saw what they came from the families all interconnected with friends who have known each other from sometimes you know childhood from prep or kinder even this interconnectedness of people it just was my favorite thing I loved it I loved being a part of something I loved the flow of it I loved the connections I mean I'm always searching for connection that's part of who I am so that to me was just something that I fell in love with and couldn't leave so I didn't (laughs) and did you find you find it and the reason why I asked this question is because Having moved from one country to another, albeit country, I, yeah, you, from, from the yeah. UK to Australia, yeah. albeit I was older, the adjustment that you have to make and the the acceptance of others to you is it was challenging for mm. me. How did you? You were younger, what, what, eight, eighteen, then nineteen. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm focusing on the religion here bit, was that, did people, were you, because small ethnic groups all tend to be kind of, oh, you're, and if you're not from a, a family they know or whatever else, people might go, oh, well, I don't know you, so I'm not going to accept you. I mean, mm-hmm. Obviously, that didn't happen mm-hmm. for you, but was, was that ever, did that? Sometimes I felt it when, I, no, not sometimes I felt it. I felt it when people who didn't know me because they didn't know me because they hadn't known me from mm. school or any of the groups that they'd come in contact with as they were growing up um, looked at me with kind of either curiosity or confusion, like where, who are you and where did you come from kind of thing. Mm. And I would feel a bit insecure about that. I'd, I'd feel a little bit intimidated. But I was really very accepted from a really early time in those years. I used to stay at friends' houses and their parents would always be really welcoming and I was I loved that. I love like, you know, moving into a family environment and hanging out with the mum and dad is one of my favourite things. Like I'm the person who's mates with the person's parents or grandparents or family. Like I know that's what I do. I kind of, you know, get into a person's family. I love it. So I was very much just taken on. And most of the things that people said to me, you know, and I wasn't insulted by it, was, really? You look Jewish. So, and I would say, well, that's just because... You know, I'm a wog. <laughs> I come from something European. I have the same values as you. I, I wasn't... I didn't have a community as I grew up. But I, I am the, I'm the same in that way. And do you still think you have that now? That do I have community now? No, you have that issue with... Not much. At times, you know what... Because again, I, I can draw my own experiences. I live in, I've lived in a city for 12, 13 years. But there are times where I, I know I don't, I struggle with as much as I love where I live. I don't belong. I mean, I live here and I've got mm. good friends, but I don't belong here, if you know what I mean. There's Your history there, isn't that. here, so it's yeah. harder for you, isn't it? Yeah. My history is here. I was born True. and raised in Melbourne. True. So I've got a lot to connect to, and I have my closest girlfriends from my past that are still part of my life now. So I'm connected to both phases of my life. It's one thing for me. And I don't get, you know, if I was, if I looked different, I might be more ready, I might be questioned more. But I look, I'm European. So people don't even question me anymore. And I'm, you know, I'm 49. I've been around in this community for 31 years and so how do you think that experience and what you just told me going back to the parenting and your children how has that shaped how you parented them what mm. values have you have you instilled in them from that values around family absolutely around place and belonging when I used to complain... And when you say a place and belong, tell me what you mean by that. So I was about to explain. When I was young and I had been kind of forced into this Catholic education, my mum used to make us go to church on Sundays. 
not her, she wasn't allowed to enter the building because she was divorced. The priest said, your children are welcome here, but you can't come in because you're divorced. This is back then, 1976, right? Anyway, Luke and I, my brother, we used to wake up in the morning on Sundays and try and pretend to be sick so we didn't have to go to church. My mum said to me when I had to go to church, when I had to be in this education that I didn't care about, didn't care about God and the Bible, I didn't care about that stuff. And she said to me, I'm going to give you something and when you're an adult you can choose to reject it but it's my place to give it to you. And so even though I wasn't surrounded by a whole community of people in the same way that the Jewish community is so connected in those kinds of ways, that my mum still gave me this basis, this solid kind of basis of something to have and to own that I could then leap pad from, I could decide whether it was for me or not. And so with my children, the values of providing for them a safe place to belong inside of, whether that's a community or a constant school environment or the family home, and it's all of those things, that they can then have the strength, resilience and connections within themselves to make their choices as they get, as they get older. I guess that's one of the most important things that I want for my kids and that Moose and I value is giving them this solid basis from which to go forth into their own lives. And you've seen that what you've tried to instill in them mm-hmm. has borne out and it's, they have become children who belong, feel like belong and all the things that you just said. I think so. They've both got really healthy friendships They've got a mix of close friends and, you know, people around in their periphery who are part of their social group who they may socialise with and or see intermittently. They're comfortable with their place, I guess. Both got different types of human angst, which exists. That's real. You know, sometimes feelings of struggle that become amplified because they might think this, that's particular to them or that's a terrible thing to feel. But, uh, you know, watching them grow, I can see that what they're, you know, ruminating about, what troubles them is really normal human struggle. And you talked before about at a very early age giving them choices of something and mm-hmm. making them decide what they wanted to do. At what point do you think, where, when I grew up, it was the, the, of, my, of our generation, children was to be seen and not heard? And that's changed, clearly. Not in every case, but would you, would you, your, your children have a voice. Yeah. They can express an opinion, you've talked mm-hmm. about that. And, and do you find that, that's, obviously that's important to you because that's what you've instilled in them. But you find that challenging where there's arguments where they challenge you to then be able to clearly communicate what you want from them or what you want them to do or you've got to explain yourself, justify yourself? No, I love it. I love all the toing and froing of figuring stuff out. I love it. I'm fine with fighting and arguing. I'm fine with opposition. I mean, I'm a strong-willed person and I often think I'm right. Like as Moose says, that my motto in life is I agree with me. I 
Yeah, but do you think, okay, so that's how much of that <laughs> can be, because you are a strong personality. And would you say in your family dynamic that you're the strongest personality? I am the most expressive personality. I'm strong-willed. But there's what strong looks like or strong-willed looks like. And then there's the experience of someone's strong will out there that's not recognised. Right? So Moose is extremely strong-willed, but he's really flexible at the same time. So on the outside, he looks like he's this really breezy bloke, but actually he's much more rigid and inflexible than me. And how do you, Okay, so how do you find that then? Does my head in. So how, as a couple then, do you yeah. manage what you're put, trying to yeah. instill in your children? Mm-hmm. He comes from a rigid place, you come from more flexible. How do you parent then? Co-parent in that, in that? We come back to our core values all the time. But in the moment, when you're having a discussion, if we were sitting here in this room with your children, you, 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 do you, is, there a, is there a big blaze because you, you can't get what you want and you're strong-willed and you uh, and then you go away and you uh, and you come back to, and then you work it out? Or how does that work? So do you remember when you are at our place for dinner yes. and we had that big discussion? That's what I mentioned. That's what happens. Yeah. What did you witness? What did you see? Can you remember? Yeah, completely. You, you created a space where you allowed, maybe allowed is not the right word, where you enabled your children to have a voice, mm-hmm. to express an opinion, to tell you what they thought. You mm-hmm. listened to them. It got heated in moments. Opinionated. Opinionated. But they were both, one more than the other, uh, and in terms of children, able to express why they didn't think what you were saying was right. Yeah. And then in the end, with a little guidance, they understood that where I was coming from. Yes. But to have them be able to get into that argy-bargy is so satisfying for me. And so... And if you look at your... Okay, so that doesn't matter because you don't have to... It's not about naming names. If you look at your peers, how different is your parenting style to, uh, to your peers? I, as a strong person, this sounds odd for anyone who's, you know, who knows me, but I'm not controlling not really. I will. I like things to be. I like things the way I like them, but I don't feel the need to like push people into being or doing what I think is right. You know, I'll be flexible with that stuff. I'm. I don't need to be rigid. I'm someone who can cope with um, a lot of change and just move with it. I could change my plans for the day in five times according to with my kids said they needed something or whatever it was or I had to like fit in with someone else and then it all has to shift around so I don't care about that kind of stuff so I think it's that I don't have that attachment to things being having to be exactly like that not really driven by anxiety I'm more a person who's reactive and might get agitated and express frustration but I don't really don't get not driven by that need to make it all be exactly how I need it to be so that means that I can just respond to what's going on in the moment, I think. Because I'm loud, expressive, opinionated, strong-willed, it gets really confused with controlling, and it's not that, actually. And where does the loud, strong-willed, all those words you just use, where does that come from? 
were you just that's as naturally or is that something that you picked up or, or were your parents like that i'm just interested have you picked that up before dan because <laughs> i know you <laughs> right uh, yeah but no, where's it come where from? does it come from i think there's some big personalities in my family history quite strong people but did you see their strength being something that you must have done then? My mum is like a powerhouse of a human being. My mum's much less negotiable than I am as a mum. Like my mum likes it to be kind of how she likes it to be and she likes to do what she likes to do. She's extremely giving and she's extremely generous and she, you know, shares a lot of herself. She needed to do things the way she needed to do them. But I always saw her strength. I grew up with a poem on my fridge about if you think you're blah, blah, then you are. You know that poem? It's an anonymous author. If you think you're downtrodden, you are. If you think you're something, something you are. But in the end, the man who can is the man who thinks he can or whatever. So always mind over matter. And, you know book on the shelf saying fear the fear and do it anyway like I was always enabled and I and my mum she talked to me all the time so I was allowed to talk I was allowed to express I had a big temper as a kid so I raged a lot about the stuff that I was going through and she let me so I was never demonized and what do you think about looking back on that now? Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Absolutely essential to the allowing a person to have whatever they feel about something to exist. So it can move from there and transition away from what the original feeling might be because you don't have to sit in that original feeling, but that I can express, feel it and say it and I'm not you know, in trouble for it. I might have a fight with you about it, but it doesn't mean anything about who I am. And so with someone like my mum when I was growing up, she listened and she heard and she embraced what I was feeling and then she would try to work with it and, you know, and she'd bring me around. I think, you know, when you look at books on neuroplasticity and the whole brain child stuff like that, which is Dan Siegel's work, he talks about how you calm the downstairs brain which is the amygdala which is the part of the brain that has those reactions that's anger and fear and all that sort of stuff and once that part's soothed then you can engage this upstairs brain which is like the prefrontal cortex which is all the part that says you know actually I had that big massive reaction but I'm going to be okay you know and so so she did that she did that with me so she normalized she probably didn't realise what she was doing, but she normalised that I can have a massive feeling and then still be all right. And interesting, so I totally get that, that sounds amazing. But in that moment, when you need to express yourself and put it out there, the person who's at the end of that, in your husband, <laughs> let's say, just use him as an example in this case, if he's not used to that... Oh, he's used to it now. Okay. But no, but historically, <laughs> how do... I mean, was that... How did... So, and, if he, and, and if he is like a lot of men, unfortunately, who internalise stuff, then 
was did you, were you aware of that and how that might be for him? I knew his family, his sister, his parents before we were together. Okay. So I knew and know what he comes from and came from. And there was some fairly kind of, you know, strong characters around him who were women. So he, in part, is both comforted by and pushes up against that. So with us, he sits within something that's, you know, familiar to him. It's not always what he likes or what he'd prefer, but he can work with it. He's, yeah. Look, he, he does the things to minimise it that you wouldn't even know. And half the time I'm like, hang on a second. <laughs> You're like, reduce me to something. And here, here's me, the big loud one, who's expressing myself. And that's what I was saying, coming back earlier to that point about, you know, how people can tightly control and hold a situation and actually contain the people around them or even shift or manipulate the people around them, not with any ill will, just by action, without the people around them realising until they already feel like they've been shifted into a position they didn't realise they were in. You know, they're really kind of under-the-radar stuff. And so he, he does, he's like that. He's probably one of the most strong people I know and yet everyone looks at him and thinks he's a soft and fluffy one. <laughs> I would agree with you. And to, to what extent do you think it's important to know? You mentioned it just then about you knew his family. A lot of times you meet somebody, if you get married, you're in your 20s, whatever, typically that often happens for lots of people. You don't really know the person and where they're from and their dynamic, family dynamic. How, how important do you think that is that you did know that? You just described, obviously, that was important, but in general terms, would you say that's really important? So it was important to me, but I would say it's essential information to understand where your partner comes from. Not that they come from Caulfield South, but which is information as well, but... Know what they grew up inside of. Know the kinds of people they grew up around. Know what they experienced because that really shows you and tells you who and what this person is, what they will react to, what they'll fight up against, what they'll dismiss, what they'll deny, what they'll embrace, what they'll exaggerate, what they get angered by, all that stuff. Because it's all of how we are hardwired and... And basically programmed from birth to, you know, mid-twenties. So, yeah, it's, it's really important. So I would say people need to know, they need to be curious. And do you think from your, perhaps your professional experience as well as your personal experience, that people don't, didn't do that research when they met somebody? They didn't understand that? Do you think that happens now with people? I don't know if you can, from again. What I find is that people, not for lack of wanting to know, but people struggle to 
talk. They struggle to find the space to feel safe enough to be heard in. So whatever they might feel uncomfortable or ashamed about, about themselves or their own upbringing, whatever it is that's caused them pain, uh, that they really struggle to talk about that. So that as a couple, people, as couples, people aren't really being curious enough or safe enough for their other person to really talk. And if a person hasn't grown up talking and expressing or being allowed to say, then they don't know what to do or what to say or how to do it or even that they're allowed or that they can. So, you know, I think that's what really happens as opposed to someone not doing their due diligence. Tell me, what, what, uh, what gives you pleasure in your life? Different tack. My kids bring me pleasure and watching them be the kinds of people I think that they are, sitting in their own skin and being who they are. So I get a lot of pleasure from motherhood, which is we've talked a lot about relationship and motherhood today and we've gone from talking about that in my you know experience as a person myself and where I've come from through my children and my values but that is what brings me deep pleasure is the connection with other people and the experience of a relationship that comes from paying attention to it so that's either with my children which I love being a part of their lives you know just watching them be that brings me a lot of pleasure so my own human experience with other people when it's you know connected is what brings me pleasure I get a buzz out of that from (laughs) I'll tell you something that brings me great pleasure although it's just not possible most of the time is I like driving really fast with the windows open and good music on (laughs) but the traffic's so bad that I don't get to do it there's this tiny stretch of road on Nepean Highway where it goes from 60 to 80 in a second like at an intersection and I like to like literally go as fast as I'm allowed in that stretch of road but there's always too much traffic so you know quite anticlimactic but that music is a huge source of joy for me all kinds of music did you have that growing up going back to my dad listened to music all the time and my mum not so much but except for in the car when we would go on trips and stuff, mum and my stepfather Kim would always have, like always play a record, you know, like in the car, be like Donna, um, Barbara Streisand or, you know, the Beatles or something like that. Just, so I've got music that's memories. Yeah, music is good and music's a big part of our, our home, our life at home. We always have, you know, music unless everyone just wants some peace and quiet. And did that come from you? Joel loves music. Moose finds music annoying most of the time. So we kind of turn off, turn on sometimes. Yeah, look, I love music and I love it being on, but my kids have always loved it as well. I think I always have music on in the car and whatnot. So obviously they, from a young age, also loved it. Do your kids love music? Yeah. Yeah. I love music. You've been to concerts with your kids, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. So tell me, you've missed something out, and obviously... What else brings me pleasure? Yeah. My art is yes, you're looking right. at my yeah. painting. You can't see everybody, <laughs> we're looking at... I am, anyway. Yeah, so that, where, does, where does that come from? 
where does where does your love of art and your ability to be an artist where did where did that I think I'm I'm instinctively and naturally a creative person anyway I'm pretty minimalist in my expression I often feel a bit of a like I'm a bit of a bloke sometimes you know like a like hard edge painting and you know our furnishings at home are pretty simple you know there's not a lot of fluff there's no chintz there's no, <laughs> there's no pink more functional yeah so I've always been a creative person just hadn't quite found an outlet you know I was I love gardening and that's a creative thing too I searched for a while and then about 15 years ago I picked up a paintbrush and started to paint you know like I did that painting yeah yes you know I did a lot of things like that initially and I knew I always wanted to go back and study some of the basics just so that I could know the materials that I was dealing with and some technique which I did in 2016 and just decided that I wanted to give it a go. You've done very well you've had stuff shown in galleries or gallery? Yeah a gallery. Which is impressive very impressive. Why not make more of that? I want to. (laughs) I don't think I could give up the work that I do with you know as a psychologist as a therapist with my clients etc that's big part of who I am I am really bad with routine so I would really benefit from saying right Monday is the day when I do this Tuesday I'm here at work Wednesday I paint Thursday I'm here at work Friday I do you know if I committed to a routine but then I wake up in the morning and then you know I get distracted I'm a bit of a procrastinator I think of something else so I go there you know or someone calls and says blah 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 and I say okay and I abandon my own stuff to what's happening in the moment sometimes so I'm not very disciplined I would need to be much more disciplined and routined to be able to make money out of art which means developing a career so that you're you have commitments. Do you find that frustrating that you can't do that or you haven't done that as much as you want to? As part of my general character, it's a, it's a frustration that I don't get things done how I want them to because I'm unroutined and I kind of keep wanting to say lazy but I know I'm not lazy but I just, I can leave things for ages. Just sit there. And is it, you just said it then, do you overthink? Do I overthink it? No, I, I actually... that In is, general, I mean. In, do you overthink stuff in general so that you don't end up thinking through myself all the... No, 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 no. Look, I've got the... Obviously, I, my tendency is to understand and or analyse. But what you just witnessed then in me going towards and away that idea of being lazy is when old conditioning meets a better understanding of myself. So I might have said in the past, I'm lazy... But that's actually not true. I'm not lazy. So, you know, conditioning and life experience up until you start changing it means that you can say I'm hopeless or I'm lazy or I can't when actually a lot of that's not really true. So I caught myself. So my my first thought might be to say I can't get things done because I'm lazy. But that's not true. Yeah. I don't get it done because... I'm not very routined, I'm not very structured, 
that's part of the way my personality is not as a deficit it's okay but the world is you know likes structure and order and when you're not a very structured ordered person by nature and because it's not even your preference not my preference I don't like it I don't like being too planned up I like to be able to change my mind whenever I want the idea of being stuck is hell I want to go back to connection you talked about that being very important to you mm-hmm. I totally resonate with that it's very important to me how has that been a benefit and a hindrance to you in your in your social life in terms of having friends and that impacting on the type of friends you've got and then also worked against you as well in terms of oh if the connection was there and then it and then for whatever reason it's not there has that happened to you in your life mm-hmm. so go on tell it's me a big question it's a very big question very open-ended um, question. Give me some examples of where that's where it's worked and where it hasn't worked. So my need to feel close to people comes from, you know, my upbringing in the, the old, oldest part of me that seeks to be comfortable in attachments, right? So I like to be, be close to people. It drives me to connect. So it means that my friendships are usually quite deep and really present. I will talk about anything that I feel like with my friends and hope that they do too. The way that it divides friendships and leads to things like a falling out, which has happened in the past, is when what happens with close intimacy, as you've experienced like in a marriage or something, is that you see all the shit with the good. And sometimes friendships aren't or can't cope with all of that muckiness of intimacy you said that and it hurt my feelings and how come and what was going on and I don't well you know like all that stuff that goes on that more superficial friendships or connections may not get to and and that's okay that's that that's not a judgment the more connected the closer you become to a person doesn't then follow that it's always better yeah. It sometimes follows that neither of you in that friendship are coping very well with the muckiness of all that intimacy. It's messy. Intimacy is messy, right? That's why marriages bust apart and friendships break down because we struggle with each other's crap, which comes out only when we're close. Doesn't come out. Does it come out with the butcher? No. Nope. He's great. First person I told that I was pregnant back then. You know, <laughs> we don't. Those relationships that don't have mess aren't messy. Yeah. So that's how connection is both wonderful and, you know, challenging or confronting or... And if you look back at where relationships didn't work out or fell apart, how would you, what would you have done if you look, I'm sure you do... What would you have done differently? I mean, are there general things you can say to me? Not specific, I'm not looking for specifics. Because every, every relationship, friendship you might have had where that's happened would be different. But there are things you go, oh, you know what? If I was like that or if I'd done that, there's a, something in you or you don't. It doesn't work like that. I might have to pull that I believe in me. <laughs> card out and say I probably wouldn't have done that much differently I think my directness 
is sometimes hard to bear for others and I call I call things quite openly sometimes without sometimes without a filter and I have to really recognize that yeah as a something that is not fair sometimes not fair for the other person to be as open or to be exposed in that way or to be called out or something and but why do you why do you think that as as you said that to me i think openness and, and not necessarily vulnerability but saying what you think is very important and more people did that then i think the world would be a better place i get there can be ways in which and I, obviously i'm not there i wasn't there i don't know but so this is tricky territory because the rules have a whole lot of you know sub rules <laughs> with caveats <laughs> okay because this is a messy territory of intimacy so for example if you're asking me about me as opposed to friendship in general then i would say there's lots of things i don't i wouldn't say to a person that I'm really close with because it's either none of my business or it's too hurtful because what I see, according to me, in my opinion or my mind, is not something that that person can hear. So I can't tell them. And and yet because I've got a really direct way of speaking, it's confused with I've said everything I've wanted to say, which I don't because I hold things that I think are not mine to say or would be hurtful, then what happens sometimes is the direct openness can come back in a way that is hurtful for me. You know, to answer your question about, you know, how I might be responsible for relationships either breaking down or what would I do differently, I I would have to say I'd have to be, you know, I need to be and I always am quite mindful, if I can, taking into consideration my personality, mindful of what's going on for that other person and managing my words. And do you think the way that you are comes from the way that you were, going back to what you said about the way you were parented by your mother? Mm, yeah, a lot of that, yeah. That she allowed you to express... Look, my grandfather, my nonno, my, you know, my maternal grandfather, he, I spent a lot of time around him. He was very consistent father figure for me I'm the eldest daughter of the eldest daughter so my mum was married at 19 and had me at 21 my grandmother was in her 40s when I was born right early 40s and so I was almost like the fifth child in their family my parents divorced young so I spent a lot of time around them my grandmother was a provider of you know the family kind she worked hard with my grandfather but she also provided this strong family environment where she took care of everything so I grew up around strong people. My nonno was, you know, really opinionated, very feisty, feisty person, as is my mum, and as am I. And so I watched them all function together as a family. You know, family lunch on a Sunday might involve three separate outbursts of disagreement with absolutely no ill will or lasting sentiment past that lunch. So it was okay you know, to say, but you had to still, you don't get personal and insult somebody, you know, so it's got to stop at that, for coming back into. Yes. 
it's what you learned that mm. that was the way that yeah. was the dynamic of your family and that's it, it, it yep but that must be going back to what i was just saying really challenging them with friends because if you want to connect with them you want to be who you are because that's i've got but yet you have to you said you have to hold i've got kick-ass friends I can't, I'm not very good with duplicitous relationships. I'm not, I don't gravitate towards people who can't talk to me. It's it's empty, it's it's not not fulfilling for me. So I like to connect, that's that need to feel close to someone. Being able to give them a hug or pinch them on the bum, you know, tell them about, you know, whatever's going on. You know, that to me is a friendship, not all bum pinching, of course. (laughs) Have I pinched your bum before? Don't you have? Maybe you have to after <laughs> this. Then I don't, I don't recall your vision. It does require. Much, I haven't got much of a bum, but yes. It does require you not expecting it. Well, clearly now, then that's not going to work, is it? See a cheeky bum, it needs a bit of a pinch. No, I like to feel close to people. I'm tactile. I like to to share and give. I like to do. So I think my friends get a lot of that. I'm there for them. Sometimes I can forget that they had something important coming up, but as you know, as soon as we're talking about it, I'll listen to everything they've got to say about it. And but and that's that's so what you've talked about sounds amazing in your ability to connect with people really deeply, and and you've got kick-ass friends as you said, which I'm sure you do, and I and I even know some of them, and they are. But it must be challenging to be at times misunderstood. Yeah. Because you are going, well, this is just who I am. I'm telling you, this is, to me, this is normal. This is the way, and yet they will, and that comes down to everybody's uh, family of origin and and all of that stuff and how they were brought up, everything. But that must be, that must be challenging. I mostly only feel misunderstood if there's a disagreement. And my nature is to make myself be understood. And when you're having like a disagreement with someone, you don't always get the opportunity to explain as thoroughly as what makes you feel comfortable. And that's that's actually reality, right? We have to sit with a certain amount of discomfort. You know, no amount of me explaining my position to you means that you should agree with me. So, because you've got your side of it, you're you. Being misunderstood is just a part of what I have to learn to sit with when it happens I'll make sure that my position is stated and they need to do what they need to do with that I can't make them understand and to be honest it doesn't happen very much yeah I've had two significant friendships have falling outs or breakdowns in them which has resulted in some time apart that was a heartbreak I am close with both of those people again we needed time out. They were very intimate relationships with some very, very difficult times in our lives shared, either growing up and the pains of that, you know, I'm talking about an old friend, or the time that we were living in that was really challenging for everybody, for us all as individuals, that led to, you know, tension and frayed nerves and things said that was too hard to cope with you know we needed some time out 
and we've come back together. And who initiated that out of interest? It happened by us being in and around each other's friends, being in that person's social environment and step by step, just little chat here and there, enjoying it, saying, do you want to catch up? Okay. You know, very mutual, yeah. tentative, careful, early times again. Well, that's a good place to wrap up, I think. I want to ask you one more question. Is this like the big one? No, it's, it's up to you. Who's your favourite person? It's, it's up to you. <laughs> Dan, of course. I know that. I'm not going to ask you that. So the podcast is called More Real. Mm-hmm. What would make your life more real? Nothing. I think I have about as much real <laughs> as I can handle. I feel genuinely, authentically connected to the things around me, what I choose, what I like, and that makes me feel really real. I don't know if I could be more real. An honest answer. Thank you. Thank you for listening to More Real. I truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me. If you've enjoyed it, please tell anyone you know about More Real. I'm very grateful as always for your support. Thanks very much.